Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first nine episodes of this podcast exploring the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the Accidental Gods project. This podcast, the website, and the membership program that arises from it and which gives people access to the world of conscious evolution. Since then, we've been exploring the extraordinary, lively, inspiring intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, from which we can craft a vision of a future that is generative for all of us, for the human and the more-than-human worlds. My guest this week is someone who lives and breathes the change that we need to be. Alex Barker is mostly the author of the book How to Be More Pirate, which arose, as you will hear, from the movement generated by Sam Conniff's book Be More Pirate and everything that came after it. I will link to both of the books in the show notes and to their website and to the various ways that you can become a pirate and become part of their community. But before we head into that, I want to read you a bit of the start of How to Be More Pirate because Sam wrote the introduction and then Alex wrote the rest. And Sam describes how, at the beginning of Be More Pirate, he's put a dedication to his elder daughter. And she is one of the first people to get the book, and she picks it up and she starts to flick through it, and her face falls and falls and falls. And eventually she says, Daddy, how did you manage to write a book about pirates with absolutely no pictures in it? Which is fair, because she was five years old. And he says his answer to her went something like this. Well, my love, you see, the thing is, your dad thought he spent the last 20 years trying to save the world until he realized that the well-meant movement of game changers was inadvertently often perpetuating problems by allowing identity politics and big ideas like social enterprise to fill the space of solution-finding. This means that we didn't ever get to the heart of the matter, which is to say that problems will not be fixed by fixing the problems, because what's really needed is an overhaul of the engine that is causing the problems. In other words, the business model. And I read that, and how could I not invite the people who create that onto Accidental Gods? Because if you gain anything from these podcasts, it's that we don't change the world by painting different colours on the wheels of the bus. We need to change the bus. We need to stop the bus. We need to get off. We need to look at the road. We need to look at where we're going, why we're going there, and, crucially, how we are going there. And this is what Alex Barker is looking at with how to be more pirate. So, people of the podcast, please welcome Alex Barker. So, Alex Barker, pirate extraordinaire, welcome to Accidental Gods. Thank you for taking time out of what sounds like a totally hectic post-book launch existence. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. Um, So, we are here today because you have recently launched How to Be More Pirate, which is the sequel to Be More Pirate. And we've both agreed that we don't want to talk exclusively about those. But for people who are not familiar with these, we ought to at least give a bit of a framing background. Mm. So starting with Be More Pirate, can you give us the real elevator pitch of that, which you can probably do in your sleep? (laughs) Yes, I I hope so by now. So Be More Pirate was originally um, in the book. It was published in 2018. It's written by a guy called Sam Conniff, who is a, a social entrepreneur who ran a marketing, a youth marketing agency called Liberty, um, in which he 
yeah, I spent 20 or so years working with young people, mainly in South London. And Be More Pirate was a sort of love letter to those to those young people. In them, he found the leadership that we need, which he wasn't seeing in the sort of upper echelons of government and in traditional leadership, and found that this more entrepreneurial, this more agile, purpose-driven generation where he was finding kind of inspiration. And Be More Pirate was also, I guess, a, a venting, a frustration. It was you know, in the two years post-Brexit, feeling like everything was fracturing. So uh, that's where the ideas came from. But he always used to describe these young people as pirates and then, but didn't really know why. And so started to do some research into what is, what do I mean when I say pirates? And then did, ended up really getting into the history and found, if you look back to the, the golden age of piracy, this really short period of time, about 300 years ago, when a sort of group of young professionals in mainly in the UK but it ended up joining up with other like nomadic pirates around the world decided to rebel against the establishment they decided that the rules of the day were not serving them um every, it was incredibly self-serving and the, the existence in the royal navy and on merchant ships which was the primary means of employment at the time was so brutal uh mm. they they quite literally sort of jumped ship and, and formed their own crews, went off, and in doing that, pioneered lots of new ways of working and living that have become the hallmarks of civilization. But pirates are never credited for any of this because hmm. they've been tarnished with this reputation of being evil villains for so long. And yet, actually, they were really innovators. They were pioneers. Um, and they were they were much more they're much fairer than we give credit for. We assume that because they, you know, they did steal, <laughs> that they are therefore completely immoral. But it was it's much more nuanced than that. So pirates pioneered things like fair and transparent pay for their crews. They had equal say. They had democracy on board. They formed a system of dual governance. So the captain and the quartermaster shared the power. That's something that we rely on in government today, this this two-house system to prevent corruption. Mm. And they even had same-sex marriage. So they were they worked with like the, the limits and the realities of, of human nature, but did so in a way that was that valued each individual far more than was so at the time in the sort of broader society where the lower classes were there to really serve the needs of the the um the establishment and the elite. So there's a lot to, and, and, you know, through the book, Sam, essentially, it's a written as a business book. So it's a, really about what we can learn from pirates about culture and organizational structure and, and also mindset, like what, you know, the courage and the conviction to go off and decide to rewrite rules. And there's a better way of doing this. There are better systems. There are better means of being together as people. Yeah. That's what pirates did. And that's where we take the inspiration from. So it's really busting a lot of those myths. And the, the book sparked a, quite a big reaction from people, so much so that Sam couldn't really like, manage it all himself. So I came on board. It became a bestseller and and obviously stretched right around the world. <laughs> yes, it did. And that was due to a few slightly daring publicity stunts that he did at the time, fly posting the outside window of the publishers. Um, and they didn't like that. But he was trying to live the values of the book, you know. He was trying to rebel a little bit and, and in a, in a tongue-in-cheek way. Um, test the limits of what Penguin were willing to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and to be fair, that's how I found it because we share a publisher, and and my publicist sent it to me and went, "I think you're really going to like this." Um, so they knew, uh, you know, in my experience, they're not the most piratical of publishers, um, but but there are people within who clearly got it, um, and yeah. So so the rest is history. It became a bestseller, and then you came on board to help with the overwhelming workload that arose from Yeah, the I think things. it was a moment where it could have become nothing or it you know it could have been or it could be something. So the workload was what we decided decided it should be. Um he did have, you know, you I guess as an author you probably know this, you can choose to respond to people or you can choose to not have the capacity to do it. So and you know that's not yeah. always a bad thing. People have their priorities. Some people are just researchers and they want to but you know Sam very much felt that this is about action. Um, and he, we are both, both of us are all very clear that we were sick of sort of just talking shops, yeah. that we wanted to see action. So yeah. we better act. So yeah, I came on board to turn it into a community. But I asked him the, the question at the beginning, you know, what, what is your, what do you think your community is at the moment? And he said, I have absolutely no idea. It's just a group of people who've written to me. Right. 
You had to build the community first or find out who it was. Yeah, I, I like to think that the community builds itself more than I build it in that, you know, people have agency. And I, I wanted to see where the swell of momentum was rather than impose structure on people immediately be like, this is where we're going to be talking to each other. This is where these we're going to have monthly meetups. And I wanted to see organically where the energy was amongst all these people who'd who'd emerged. So I just started to follow follow that really. I, I email people back, I talked to them, we started to build relationships and it, it all flowed from there. And there's such a variety of people that I could, you can't just say that you're all in a network. Like that doesn't again work either. It's and I think as I say in the book, it, it's more emerged as like a fleet of a lot of people with very, very strong agendas and ideas about what they're doing and the actions that they want to take. And I sort of act as a, you know, Be More Pirate as a central hub, something to hold all of those ideas or manifestations of the of the principles in the book. And occasionally they come together and they and we'll discuss, but it's really about what people have capacity for. It's just a holding space in a way. And it's a holding space that is held within a set of coherent values that arose out of the book, but it felt to me as if they had been refined a bit or morphed a bit by the time you were beginning to build the capacity to bring a community together that that then has led into writing How to Be More Pirate. So what would you say were the underlying tenets and belief systems and values that, when you came on board, gave rise to everything else? Totally. And I think it's very clear in the book that you have these five R principles, the rebel, stand up to the status quo, rewrite the rules, Reorganize yourself, um, which is really about scaling for impact, not just growth. So being very quite anti-growth. Redistribute power. So fight for fairness is is a core principle, and retell your story or weaponize it to give more power to small voices. So yeah, I I always wanted to explore those ideas in a bit more depth to see how they how people could really apply them. And it's not quite as clear cut as those. You know, here's five principles that you can follow in a framework so I was waiting to see what what emerged from the reality of application and actually the first thing was the pirate code which isn't really any of those things which is something slightly different altogether I suppose once you've thought through all those principles what emerges as a result so you know what your specific principles are and the foundation of your values it's actually really what emerges from that question in the first book what will you fight for what will you stand up for as at least as a starting point, or there are lots of different ways you can approach creating a pirate code. And I think for me, you know, on a practical level, it's not just about principles, because anyone can say, I believe in X, Y, Z, and not do it. It's about how are you translating those into your day-to-day behaviours and closing that gap. Because right. if we don't do that, we just end up with, a, a, a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of, and then a lot of people saying they stand for something and then not doing it. And that's where so much frustration in society lies, I feel. Yes. And we see it all around us in our governance, existing governance structures of people who say one thing Mm. and do something completely different. And we know by now that when there is a disparity between those two and the cognitive dissonance that arises, it's what you do that counts every time. Mm. So, because I want to move to more where do we go from here tell us can you tell us just a little bit about your own background of what made you the Alex the person who could join with Sam to do this and then a little bit about how you came to write the second book how to be more pirate and that'll maybe give us a launching pad for talking more deeply yes so I always do this I always explain Sam's backstory for him (laughs) which is really important and integral to the whole story but I came to it um I'd worked my whole career up until that point in the charity sector, pretty much, just because I simply imagined once I'd identified that I wanted to do something that would be beneficial to the world or what I thought would be, I thought, you know, charities seem to fulfill that function in society. So that seems like an obvious place to go. I graduated in the the financial crisis, so I, I, I was pushed and pulled quite a bit in terms of what I wanted to do versus what I could do and with, with a very similar skill set. I ended up anyway working at the um, RSA, which is the Royal Society for the Encouragement of the Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. Yep, of which I was once. Uh, um, what is it? A mem- it's not a member. You've become a fellow, I think. Yes, yes, briefly. Until I discovered, I think, what you discovered. What was your experience of the RSA? I'll, I want to be balanced on on this point. 
but also give some pushback. It gave me a lot of skills. There's some absolutely brilliant people who work in the RSA who I treasure as friends. But as a whole, it doesn't do what it professes to do. In my opinion, it is not a beacon for real social change because it is too institutionalized. It it harnesses people who've gone through the same kinds of experiences, um, universities, you know, sort of think tanks and civil service, and it essentially breeds the same kind of thinking, I think. You can't get radical change that way. You need actually radical experiences and radical ideas. Yeah, It's an odd thing because it takes you quite a long time to understand it. But what that manifests in is, you know, we always do things in a certain way. There's a kind of very quiet clamping down on pushback. It's not open and transparent. Um, so I would fundamentally say that a lot of the values that are put down are just not what are enacted. And a lot of people silently believe that. And I know that they do. And yet there's this weird sort of cover blanket of, yeah, silence over these things. And So there's a group think that says we are we are here making a difference in the world. Whereas, in fact, what they're doing is shoring up the status quo by providing a slightly different voice to the mainstream voice? Yeah, I'd say so. Okay, I want to be fair and say that there are good projects that do, you know, have some impact, like there's funding that is handed out to social, you know, enterprises and, you know, things like the Student Design Awards that are really come up with, you know, help students to really think up some different ideas and solutions to a variety of problems. But I guess the the backbone, like the culture, is bad. And it's not moving the needle on the really big stuff. You know, as I was there, I was just like, well, things the things that matter the most seem to be getting worse. So can we not reevaluate our role in all of this? And the where Be More Pirate came into it to me as an answer was fundamentally people need to A, be more comfortable with being uncomfortable and they need to be able to challenge more. And we don't focus on helping people develop those skill sets. And we don't even, it's not even acceptable within the culture to do that. So how are you ever, how can we expect the leaders, even, you know, how can we expect the leaders of this organisation to go, we want, I would want them to go to, you know, to really push back on government, to really challenge them on what they're doing. But there's all this kind of stuff around, oh, you know, we have to be politically neutral as a charity and then we have to be, you know, then we're, a, you know, the RSA is a royal. Like we have the Queen Anne, um, Princess Anne come every year to give the president's lecture. But the point is, what does that serve in the long term? If the rhetoric says that the challenges are so big that we're going to have to do something bigger, we can't just be writing blogs. We can't just be writing reports. I just don't think that that is good enough. You know, we should be having more honest conversations about the transition between stability and instability. You know, I don't think I don't think it's acceptable to have you know, millions of pounds in reserve money and then tell people, you know, there's not enough for these potentially groundbreaking activities. <laughs> yeah, especially not now when we've discovered the magic money forest as long as we're giving it to our friends to produce plastic bin bags and pretend that they're PPE. Right, right. The, the absolute nonsense about what there is money for and what there isn't. And it's so clear that it is political will and I... And I, yeah, I guess my value, my values fell out of line with what I was seeing. And whilst I'm open to being challenged on this, I also know that this is the experience of many, many of my colleagues, not just, you know, not just in the RSA, but across the kind of charity and social innovation sector, let's say it, that it is just, it is just becoming too much of the status quo um, when the goal is to try to uproot it. So you moved from the RSA directly to working with Sam? Yes. Well, I took a sabbatical in between. I I've actually, at that point, I got onto the end of a big GDPR project at the RSA that was exhausting. And um, I decided to take a break um, to just reevaluate, really, because I just thought, I don't, know what I'm, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Because if you're asking a pirate question of what will you fight for, GDPR is probably not top of the list. Well, the weird thing is that now <laughs> I did it because it was my function. It was my role. And and the, the absolute truth is... Um, you know the reasons. There's lots of reasons why we, and I'm I'm fascinated in this in general because I do work about around organisational culture and identity. You know, I did that job and I did that because it made me feel good as a person. It made me feel valued and appreciated in that organisation for my skill set because I was the only person who could operate certain pieces of software. That must be quite cool, actually. It was. Yeah, I actually found the problem solving element of it, element of it really really great which is why I did it. But when I look at what it's stacked up to in terms of values, like actually I was putting a lot of red tape around the way that the fellows, the members could interact with each other. That was all I was doing. I was going, I'm kind of going to make this more difficult for you. And yes, the law says it, but realistically, I don't think, 
you know, now I look back on hindsight, <laughs> I think we could have probably done less because actually, you know, if you ask the members, what they want to do is connect. And so what is the point in putting, you know, we should have put the minimum amount of red tape around it, you know, and, and, and so <laughs> that's, so that's where I, what, where I was, I was doing GDPR and, and I also had a bit of a personal uh, moment where I, I broke, I, I ended a long-term relationship and that was quite difficult, obviously. So it was a lot of change in a, in a quite short period of time. But it was also, I, n- I now see doing Be More Pie, it was, the, it was going through a moment where I, I had to do something that was really, really hard. Um, the, you know, the relation thing was, was much harder than anything else I've had to do because, you know, personal relationships are <laughs> so. But that moment of courage, of finding my own courage, enough to push through to the conclusion, changed me. So by the time I got to be more pirate, which is really, you know, just at the end of it, I realised that that experience had prepared me that just transitioning from one job to another wouldn't have done. Yeah, as a kind of a rite of passage. Yes. And you were saying earlier that we need to learn to push into our discomfort, mm. which is something also that Mike Raven of AQAI was saying, that that we're all busy heading for comfort and sometimes we need the discomfort to shift us into a new way of being. And it sounds like that's exactly what you had. So you came to be more pirate at a point when Sam also was undergoing a transition because the book had taken off and he was presumably watching his email in just kind of scrolling down <laughs> at the rates of hundreds per hour-ish. And between you, you took this concept of the pirate code, which is almost Dominic Cummings' move fast and break things, but it's a do it with integrity and grounding and an understanding of the values that you bring mm. to what you're doing. And I'm really interested in, you've got a concept that's out there in the world that's written down, people can read. And yet what people want more than anything else is agency and connection. How did you, Alex, go about giving people the connectivity and the sense of tribe that I think, and I may you may say that I'm wrong, is at the core of what gives people the courage to make the changes that need to be made to undo the groupthink that tends to hold us mm. in our linear patterns. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll try and answer the first bit, which is what gives people the sense of agency and connection that I did differently. Because I thought about it, because I thought about my experience at the RSA of a network and um, and what I could do differently. And the first was that you just really have to acknowledge people. Um, you know, you talk about connection it isn't about it isn't about communication in the sense of just the channels that you're using. Or I think we we tend to focus on the, the sort of the logistics of it. What platforms are we going to use? You know, just responding to those emails. But I was very careful about how I did it. And this is again a, a big theme that comes up in the book. I I think ultimately all that matters is how you go about things. So the how as much as the why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do. I, I I'm going to call how as like the new frontier of of real change because we've, we've done why we know why Simon Sinek did it. Yes. I think purpose driven organizations is something that is talked about a lot. A lot of people understand that need that nece- that necessity, but I'm concerned with how. So for example, when I respond to an email, if I haven't got the time to take the time to really speak to that person properly, I don't bother. I, I think it's better to not, to not do it than to do it a ha- in a sort of half-assed way. A lot of people would disagree with me, and probably a lot of people would say that that's why I end up feeling a bit overworked at times. But I, I think when you're building something up in the beginning, and you can't do it for everyone, of course, but when people have put significant investment into the idea that you believe in too, you invest back. So yes. I took the time yes. to meet with people properly, um, listen to the full story, and even, you know, even to date now, like I see responding to people in a considered way, a really important part of my work um, in, a, in a time when we need connection. I can't, you can't do it all the time. And there is a, I have, you know, I have over time established limits around that. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise you just end up answering emails all day, every day, and you have to have boundaries. Actually, what you, when you said about agency and connection, they're almost like two sides of the coin because you want to give people connection, but in order to have for them to have that agency, they've got to take responsibility for their own, you know, for what they're going to do. Like I, I can prov- provide some, some sense of I'm here and I am with you, 
but I'm not doing it for you. Yes. <laughs> what, are you, what a responsibility and agency are you going to have in this process? And that's so key to pirates. Like that's again, have the concept of a network, having it all from a central brand or nucleus of some kind that we feed, I feed you stuff, hmm. you know, just, you know, to an extent feed yourself. Anyway, we're going to be sustainable. Yes. As pirates, as you and Sam, and also as, as a whole collective worldwide culture, mm. People are going to need to take the why and translate it into a how. Mm. But you did gather actual physical gatherings in the days before COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And then what I'd really like to get into is how can we give people help with their own how Mm. now in in the world that we're in at this moment of recording, which is November 2020. So, but tell us a little bit about the gatherings that you had, because they sounded quite inspiring. (laughs) Yes, there was a few smaller ones in between the two big ones that I mentioned in the book. We did like some smaller, smaller gatherings, but there were, there was the first initial one. Sam was very keen to have an event um, in the first sort of month of me starting as Right Hand Pirate. I I pushed him to shift it because he wanted to do it like two weeks after I'd even, I thought we'd better start this off on the right foot. You're not going to dictate to me how we do this, because if you want me to I need my agency, you know. <laughs> so we we moved it to February and we held it on the Golden Hind, which is Francis Drake's, the replica of Francis Drake's ship um, by London Bridge. So we're like, well, let's get the pirate thing fully established and, and get everyone on a boat. And it was, yeah, I mean, it was really, really brilliant. Um, we had a really gorgeous freak sunny day and everyone was out on the deck and then we were underneath in the gun decks and it really feels like you're a pirate because it's in a pirate ship yeah, yeah. It's dark and cramped and and we have have they got actual guns yeah they've got like uh, sort of loaded cannons and they've got lots of barrels so you kind of sit everything on a barrel and we put like candles everywhere and rum bottles and it was it was fun and i'd love to do it again if we've got you know some resource and stuff i'll 100 percent be doing that because the team on the golden hind are lovely too so yeah and then we kind of gave people two minutes to pitch an event to pitch a rebellion that they wanted to start and actually that was the genesis of some of the stories in the book and the, and the and the crews that have formed since it really did make a difference, and then so that was really fun. That was just a great kickoff to the movement, and then you know we had a big another big one six months later, which I kind of go through as a as a story at the beginning of the, how to be more pirate, just because it was there was lots of things about that event which were felt very poignant to me. It was a really hard time actually. Um, for me and Sam he was going through some stuff and that obviously impacted on our work and it impacted on me I was starting to step up I was doing a lot of public speaking and events but not really feeling ready for it so I just Hmm. felt a bit exhausted um, by the burden of (laughs) of upskilling myself very very quickly and still holding the community I trekked around lots of um, buildings in London to try and find a space that would be piratey but not a ship because we've done that. Yep, done that. Um, so and I had a, yeah, I really had a clear sense in my mind, but I just didn't know where it was. So I just did lots of Googling and then I found this warehouse in Bermondsey, went to visit it. Um, and then the initial space that they took me to was this horrible grey building, uh, which is like a car park basically, but on uh, like three floors up. So then he said, oh, there's another place at the back. Maybe try that instead. <laughs> it's funny that he didn't try this place first. And it was this amazing, again, a similar space in that it was still a warehouse. Um, but there was there was pictures on the walls, there was sofas, um, a little kitchen. So it was more of a community space. You could see that. But it also had this big graffiti on the wall that said love, but the O was a skull. And it was just, yes. you know, the sign you want to see. <laughs> All you have to do is put crossbones underneath it and you're there. I know. I was like, this is done deal. I just could see. I was like, right, we have our speakers, which we'll do against that wall. And that will be perfect. I made, I mean, there was a slight error of, in that it's quite hard to find this space. So I think that the instructions weren't very good. So less people than I want, than I, they were invited turned up, but we still had a nice crew. It was very, it was more intimate um, and people were a bit, yeah, the atmosphere was different because people were a bit, um, I don't know, things were difficult at the time. So, you know, I think we had the climate protests were really, really peak and Brexit was a bit, mad I mean it pales in comparison to this year now but at the time it felt like quite big yeah I just I I think everyone was really really um really open and quite vulnerable in what they said at that event and it it gave the feeling of a movement in a different kind of way for me it was more emotionally charged and um 
maybe that was a reflection of also where Sam and I were at at the time. But I think for we were we were at various conversational cross points of where this was all going, and it really reaffirmed like the power of pirates as as a language to unite people. And this, yeah, exactly what you just said—the combination of connection and agency that people need. So I'd love to do some more when COVID is over, because at the moment you've got a lot of online courses and workshops and things that people can do, which we'll put links in the show notes. I don't really want to head down that rabbit hole at the moment. I really want to look at what you said about shifting from the the why to the how, mm-hmm. because that does feel, we, as you said, if, you, if anyone is listening to this podcast, they know we're heading for the sixth mass extinction. We're heading for climate tipping points. They will probably have read the deep adaptation paper and be familiar with Jem Bendel. And you said in, in some of our earlier conversations that you'd done a workshop with Jem Bendel. Mm. What we, I think, need is within business and without business is for people to begin to find their the how to make change. And I want to read a little bit that's, that you wrote right at the end of How to Be More Pirate to take us forward. Sam and I will strive to provide a platform for aspiring pirates. We will create more resources to support creative rule-breaking and continue to gather the community together so that ideas can be sourced and shared. And clearly you are doing that. Mm. But you go on to say, but my ambitions lie beyond this. I want to see many more new crews forming outside of formal structures so that while the old models fall, new ones are already emerging. And I have that highlighted and highlighted and highlighted and underlined and exclamation pointed because it seems to me that that now we're post the American election. The existing president has not yet conceded at the time of recording. Our political governance structures are quite clearly crumbling. The old models are falling. But it seems to me that we have not yet built the really amazing, generative, new connected mycelial growth that I keep seeing in my vision of the oak log that Accidental Gods listeners will be familiar with. So very briefly, I have a vision of an oak log in a forest that comes up in some of my shamanic work, and it's a huge, big, solid oak log. And at some point, an elk comes along. I have no idea why it's an elk. I've never seen an elk in my life. But anyway, it jumps over the log, big log, and its right hand leg clips it, and the oak log dissolves into dust. In that moment, it looked solid, and then it's just dust. But inside is this extraordinary, vivid, vibrant mycelial growth that's been growing all the time. And it lights up in the forest and it's so beautiful Mm. and so different to the oak log in its connectivity and its resilience and its capacity to share. And I am holding that as a vision of what we're doing. and, And what really drew me to your work is that you are making this happen. In the business world, you're talking to Google and Mercedes and the NHS and big, big structures that look from the outside to be monolithic. Mm. And yet I feel that the existing structures, the the tapping of that log seems to be in real time and the dis- dissolving into dust, however hard the establishment clings on. How do we build that mycelial growth? Mm. How do we make the connections in business and outside of business, in the world, in our narratives in the ways that we communicate so that the new structures are in place when that dust settles? Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's such a, it's a big question. But you can handle it. You're Alex. Yeah, I can. And I want to just, can I go off on a teeny tiny tangent just before yes, please you do. said about your your um, vision of the elk? Um, it just reminded me of we did a, the first recording we did for our Be More Pirate podcast forthcoming um, was with uh, Cressy Westling, who's an environmental entrepreneur. She's Sam writes about her in Be More Pirate. And she talks about her when she was a kid and she, growing up in Canada, she had the, you know, because I asked her what is, what's the, the moment that is etched in your mind that pushes you on this journey to like, to absolutely zero waste. Waste is unacceptable. Um, she says it's this, I, this moose that she saw in a forest looking after its, um, it's a baby and she said it just it's ingrained in me the debt I have to the natural world and yeah I won't say any more on that we want to listen to the podcast when it comes out yes but yes that almost like talismanic 
um, vision of a, a some symbol of the natural world. As some people in my pirate crew have talk, been talking about octopuses because of right, my octopus teacher, and also one of Cat, who's one of the um, pirates in the book. Her symbol has always been for her business that she's had since two years ago, since I met her. Curators of change has always been an octopus. Um, so anyway, we we just talk about us using animals as that's an aside. Anyway, how how do we do this? How do we build new structures? I mean, it's challenging, and I'm often you know, in the back and forth between can you build them from within or do you have to do it without? Like, can you, there are different examples, people forming, let's call it um, back channel crews inside organisations, city councils, NHS, um, corporates, where you're essentially meeting on the sly and going, real culture change isn't going to come from like the scheduled meeting, is it? you know right really if we're really going to challenge why are we giving so much money let's say where why is all of our um profits still going to these shareholders or i don't know different ways in which our you know our proposed values don't actually meet our um real values how are we going to really change that so that i think is possible to bring together a few allies within an organization i've seen that happen to really form a strong challenger group, let's say, because ideally, you, yeah, we, you want to see both happening at the same time. You want to see alternatives emerging in the way that you know perhaps um, B Corp and social enterprise have challenged what business should look like. Probably not, well, not enough, but at least provide a sort of example alongside seeing that change happen within. Does that make sense? It does. But the the these behind back channel crews. Are they creating enough change or are there things that those of us not in business can do on the outside to support that? I think, yeah, I think with business it's harder. I've seen, I think what I'm seeing more, and this is where I'll, I'll probably deviate a little bit, where I'm seeing it more effective is in the kind of um, alternative democracy movements. Okay, let's talk about that. That sounds really interesting because democracy is broken. Yes, I think... In business, there's not enough of a swell of it being probably the level of radical that we need yet. Yeah. Um, so I'll just park that for a second, in my opinion anyway. Whereas I think what I've seen in yeah, project, like different democracy movements, you're seeing a very clear way of building in a different system, especially as you're seeing the, the current one really failing on so many accounts. Although it feels as though there's lots of different deliberative democracy ideas around citizens' assemblies, people's assemblies, participatory budgeting, almost at this point, maybe not working in collaboration with each other enough and a little bit slightly in competition. The fact that more and more people are putting energy and time towards trying to build these. I'm going to talk, I'll say specifically about, to give you more tangible examples, and two groups that I'm involved with, which I guess do have a relationship to Extinction Rebellion, although that's sort of, they're more like now very end tentacles. <laughs> so I participate in a group called Trust the People, which is a pro-democracy grassroots movement. Um, it's essentially a six-week program where anyone can come on board and by the end of it become a kind of community transformer. The idea is that you are in a position by the end of the course to be sort of skilled enough to start really generating some kind of grassroots community democracy projects and, and we kind of give a lot of options for how you might want to do that it might be that you want to get involved with um like movements like incredible edible which is all around food but it's starting to move more into democracy or it might be that you want to run a people's assembly a kind of gathering of people to i'm sure your your listeners know what that is is this linked to flat pack democracy who seem to be also yes yeah, so pack democracy is kind of one of the other um, movements that is connected to just the people and I guess an, an option for people once they've gone through the course we would point them towards flat pack democracy and say if you're in if you're really um, kind of revved up and want to transform democracy in your local community one thing you can do is potentially stand as an independent local town councillor and the idea of flat pack is to get a real groundswell of people standing as independents so that you essentially eradicate party politics so that we don't have this infighting system of, you know, Labour versus Conservative versus Greens, when actually what we want is what's best for the community. Like, rather than sort of saying, you know, our oh, Labour owns that policy, so therefore we, we have 
stand against it when actually that's not in the best interest of everybody. So broken. Yeah, for people who haven't heard of flat pack democracy and, and are driving their car and can't look it up, can you tell us a little bit about how it started? I, I can. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not the best spokesperson for it. Just a, a couple of sentences to put it in context for people. Absolutely, yeah. The, the secret weapon of democracy, let's say. So it was started um, in Froome in Somerset with Peter McFadden, who um, sort of began the campaign uh, just was fed up of that situation of of infighting and a very dysfunctional local council that couldn't that wasn't working for the local community. So he got a group together and said, "Let's all stand, or stand as independents, but like almost like a united group, but under no banner." And they did. They ran it like as kind of for fun, and they they made it fun. And this is a really like cool pirate point about activism. Like make it fun. Like you know they they put up like spoof signs and sort of you know with things spelt right. I think if I've got this right. So they had fun in the process. And that's a key thing about how, like, when we make things fun, they're actually usually more successful than when we make everything like a massive chore, that we, which is the way we're used to understanding work. Yeah, because the energy you put into things changes how they happen. It really, really does. And we miss that out of a lot of action-orientated projects, which is why we need to change the how. And that's why I think it's so, so important. So if Peter did that really well. And then, you know, it became it became a bit of a movement. Um, this was back in 2011 and other councils um, started to do it, started to, you know, reclaim democracy for them. And at the low level, that gave them um, just a lot more agency. Yeah. And there's all kinds of things that Peter did within Flatpak that I think changed how politics works fundamentally. He talks about how he made sure that there was a facilitator in those town council meetings so that there wasn't the room for one person to dominate. Yeah. It's just these little structural interventions that really matter. He ensured that they had deep listening practices so that it wasn't, you know, I think he's talked about it before and men, he talks about it having a more feminised politics without it being about men and women, but just practices that maybe aren't, 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 the usual for political spaces. And not just based on teenagers in Eton and how they behaved, which seems to be how our politics is, is predicated. As I understand it, they when they first stood, they said, we all have very different political views. I think they were the local transition town group. Oh, yeah. And we're not going to tell you our policies. We're going to tell you how we're going to solve the problems. These are the principles we will use. And first, the first election, they got something like 9 out of 17. So they just had... The, the balance of power. And at, four years later, at the next election, they swept the board. Yeah. 17 out of 17 of their local town councillors were the flat pack Democrats. Yeah. And and they did it. They Froome sounds extraordinary now as a place where where politics works because it isn't tribal anymore, which seems to me really, really core. We've got the tribalism is destroying us. Yeah. you've And is pointless. You summarised it far better than I, I did. That is exactly it. So how does that come with you then? You've got trusted people. You said there were two things that you were involved oh, in. Oh, that was what I meant, Flatpak, which is sort Flatpak of... Flatpak was the other one. It is a separate campaign because it has quite particular aims, whereas okay. trusted people is more of a course. It's just that at the end of trusted people, we would um, point people towards it. So I see those two things as they fit Be More Pirates so well because they are manifestations of the, co- the principles of reorganise yourself and redistribute power. And there's one other thing I'd like to mention at the end of this, actually, because I want to do credit to the Amazing Pirates in the book as well, rather than just going off on new tangents. Okay. They fulfill those principles. They're challenges to the established way of doing things, and they will uproot the system at the the root because it's not just about tinkering on the surface. And actually, I was so pleased when my dad read the book. He goes, my first thought was to think about that you should stand for politics now and I was he goes but that would just be the old way of thinking wouldn't it because you've got to create oh well done your dad (laughs) can't play into the whole the new system yeah one of the thing I want to mention was the um the amazing work that um Dina and Ian do in Colville in the Midlands around they they set up community benefit societies they've set up one there but they they will also train hoping in the future to train more people to do this which is another vehicle that's underutilized that will give people in communities agency to own decision making and even like local assets. Uh, and that is an alternative, I think. I mean, it's a bit like a cooperative, but it's there are a few more like benefits to it. Yeah. And and oddly enough, it exists within the existing system. We're trying to start one up here to do with um, local regenerative farming and how can we bring people together who grow things with people who want to grow things, with people who have land that they're not growing things on, and then the people who want to eat yeah. stuff that's been built locally. And a community benefit society 
it's astonishing. It's like this little mole that someone has snuck into a system that's otherwise wholly designed to destroy people and give them no agency. And actually, it's you get quite a lot of agency mm. with a community benefit society. Before we, we head back to talking about wonderful people in the book, I understand from, from your book, The How to Be More Pirate, that quite a lot of people came to the original Be More Pirate book through Ed Miliband's mm. podcast, the, the Reasons to Be Cheerful. So therefore, we know that it has penetrated the armor of the existing political system. And I wonder, have you got any reason to believe that it's dragging any kind of emotional literacy into our existing governance system? Um, <laughs> well, yes, I think I think that the fact that because because it was on Ed Miliband's podcast that's that's indicative of it penetrating the system. But I'd say that the you know some of the stories in the book and the people that we've managed to work with who are um, you know what you would consider quite status quo, perhaps not the political system, but in terms of enterprises like Google and mm. Mercedes and Benz, yes. the idea that they would even consider the concept of piracy and really change their strategy as a result. Yes. But Ed had read it. He's still an MP. He's still presumably fairly highly regarded inside one of our two major parties. And we know, I, I'd done a bit of a study on his podcast. His second podcast was um, talking about citizens' assemblies. And it seemed to me was pretty much wholly responsible for the setting up of the various citizens' assemblies that happened within Westminster. And they may have turned out to be desperate, damp squids, but at least they tried. So I'm guessing that that if nothing else, a number of people involved in the existing political process at least know that Be More Pirate exists as a concept. But but we're, what I'm hearing from you is it's not really then acted out. There are no pirate crews within Westminster that we know of. So I'd so I'd say that there is a big difference between people between awareness and sort of tacit support for a concept and willingness to put it into action because lots of people yes. say oh this sounds cool this sounds fun and then you go and this is why the the, case, the stories in the case of these are so much more important because you've got to put your money where your mouth is so i you know i think it's great that some politicians might have gone yeah i like this idea um, okay. but it's got to be but doing it got to be done and there there have been a, a few people who've written to me from inside the navy in recent weeks well, yeah, so they're like, yeah, I thought you might want to hear about this. We are pirates in the Navy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then and there's another um, chap who recently, recently wrote to me off the back of a, a session we did. Um, and he is doing a big piece of research on constructive disobedience in, mili in military settings. And I'm really fascinated in this. Oh, I want to get into this. Yes. I'm sort of starting to design an online course. And this is where we're really going to get into like, the benefits of disobedience, challenge and rule breaking within especially high risk or very regulated environments because we've got to get it in and, and we need to I think you need to provide those kinds of people with with their mindsets like the the under the real evidence and research um and logic behind why this why this matters yes and and also there's a huge history of that I, I my last novel I wrote about the special operations executive and they issued books to people behind enemy lines of of constructive disobedience, of how to resist in a way that will not get you put up against a wall and shot, but will make sure that, that basically nothing happens. I think, I've read so many books in the last few days, but I think it was in your book, mm. the, they just hold more meetings. You know, if, if, if in doubt, stop everything and hold a meeting, because that will guarantee that nothing happens. Um, and so I, I also have sent this book to a friend of mine who's a lieutenant colonel in the army, who is also, I think, you know, very much on board with with the ideas here. Mm. So we, we're going to have to close soon because your podcast is 45 minutes and ours is around an hour and we're, we're heading towards that. But there's something in the little bit that Sam wrote as his introduction to how to be more pirate. Mm. At the end of the first bit, he said, so if we want some kind of capitalism to remain the vehicle for human development, it needs a new engine. And my question is, do we want some kind of capitalism to remain the vehicle for human development? Do we have a choice? Mm. And if not, then what? Because because I noticed when it looked like Biden may have been elected as president of the United States, a friend of mine wrote me an email saying, same bus, different driver. Yeah. And it is true that you know the old 
Trump is the driver who's who's veering across the road trying to run people down. And at least Biden will drive on the correct side of the road, roughly in a straight line. But it's not going to get us to where we need to be if deep adaptation is real. We are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. I generally can't see the structures that we have solving that problem. And it seems to me that capitalism is structurally part of the problem. I love the fact that, for instance, Mercedes and Google are are picking up how to be more pirate and they have pirate crews, Mm. but they're working out how to sell people more vans. Mm. And and that's not going to solve the problem. Yeah. So on that last point, Sam and I have an ongoing conversation about this, of meeting people where they are versus dragging them into the future. Yes. Don't get me wrong, he has had those conversations about diesel vans. But... okay. You know, in order to persuade anyone to do anything, you have to have a relationship with them, which means you can't. Yes. You you have to really gauge how hard you push. Which is why I think this role of of I guess I don't know whatever you might want to call it, facilitator, broker, um, mediator between this is going to be an important, increasingly important role in the future. The other point about capitalism as a means for um, you know the, the vehicle for human development. I think, first of all, there's a lot of misnomers about what capitalism is and what, what it contains within a word. Yes. There are elements of it that I would always want to keep, which is enabling people to flourish and, and realise their dreams and their capacities and not be... I think people go, oh, communism keeps people down, like at, at a cap level. I think that's a, bit, a big kind of misnomer. And therefore, there's only these two binary options when actually it's perfectly possible to have a system that enables human flourishing that is also fairer. Yeah. And I've been reading this paper called... Um, I've got it kind of over here, called Rethinking Humanity um, X, which is what Sam has described to me when he first read it as like the antithesis in a way to deep adaptation in that essentially acknowledges the the mass extinction and the the possibility of breakdown, but also offers a different option of breakthrough. And and it talks through all the technologies that are being built in a way that will um, enable a a breakthrough that will distribute power, essentially, and ensure that manufacturing and everything is done at a local level. Okay, I need to talk to the person who wrote this. Who's it by? It is these two guys, um, James Airbib. I'm not sure if that's Arbib. I'm not sure if that's okay. Ed and Tony Sieber. Okay, we'll put it in the show notes and people can read it. It's like quite dense and it's written as part of a think tank, but it definitely has shown, it shows a way through in many ways. There okay. are parts of it that I have written lots of question marks over around if whether enough thought has been given to the culture of the new operating system, there's a, it's a lot, it's very technology focused. And hmm. I think if the technology is there, then the kind of, the culture will almost flow. And I'd say that's probably not going to happen, but the yeah. nature of it, the, dis, the distributedness of it will change okay. things. If you were to pull out a thing that listeners could take from that, that you have taken from that, because what I, as we're heading to a close, what I really want to do is offer people agency Mm. and direction. And once they've worked out their own why, which one hopes by now they have done, how can they work out their how? And Mm. it sounds like that paper might be a way to doing it. But how do you, you, Alex, work out your how? Mm. And what can people take away as ways that they can work out their? How do we make things different? There's not a simple answer. I, I always start people with their concept of of nailing down their values and their, their pirate code in the sense of like, what matters to you? What are you standing for? What do you really believe in? Like, be honest, like having a bit, just a level of honesty, because you absolutely can't go anywhere from there. And then I think most of us are not, haven't done that work, um, not to be um, dismissive of people who have, but it it's not something that is taught as an essential thing to do, because you just can't work out your way through all this, yeah, this, this this future that is coming whether we like it or not it's important to know what you believe in I think I'd say with this like on a practical level that we are going to have to be more resilient and resourceful at a local a more local level so the thing that I find most helpful to do is I don't I guess finding the places that you could um, really get involved with a local project that is a fun and b kind of gives a skill for the future so something maybe it's around I don't know growing or like um making in some way or even things like 
like I said, those roles around facilitating and being a mediator, a connector of people. I really believe that. And then the paper, what the paper talks about, I guess this is the main takeaway, that we are heading towards a more networked system rather than a, a system with a central operating model right. where things are concentrated from the centre. So building networks uh, and relationships is so fundamental. And doing yeah, doing that work, um, beyond, going much further beyond maybe your, your um, current I don't want to call it a bubble, but yeah, bubble circles mm. and what they call active, active socializing. So deliberately and intentionally finding people that you wouldn't usually connect with. I, I am feeling another podcast going on. If you're ever up for it, this might be something to give a whole hour to, but intentionally moving outside your own circle and building those connections. Yeah. That, yeah. I always include that and in Be More Pirate because it's, it expands your imagination, which we're going to need. Don't give enough time to. Yeah. It will give you different perspectives, which again, you people really need it's that edge of the map thing I talk about in the book of get getting into a level of uncomfortability maybe that is good for you rather than too scary um but also building yeah new networks which is the future yeah okay so one last question I am endeavoring to live this Mm. insofar as I can starting every day with what do you want of me to the world and then how do I do that Mm. and I find that my bandwidth is pretty much used up uh, the idea of going even further to the edge and making even more networks leaves parts of my soul shuddering in a corner in fetal position, <laughs> trying to look for a cave to crawl into because I haven't got the headspace. I am also totally aware that we're in lockdown too and some people are sitting at home watching reruns of The Great British Breakoff getting really, really bored. So so I do live in a slightly odd experience. But do you get to the point where you are saturated in terms of your capacity to make more networks or am I just not doing it right? That's a genuine question. So there's a few things I'd say. First of all, um, you when I say do do something, like find the thing that that you, you find joyful. So if you don't find... Podcasting. Um, yeah, precisely. I think you probably have to realise that A, you already are playing enough of a role than you need to and that's probably enough. I'm probably talking a bit more to people who might not have considered what they could do yet whereas you clearly are already like a connector and a, a broadcaster but I would also say that in the book we talk about this idea of small bold actions that this is part of the problem why so many good intentions go to waste because we think too big you go oh my god I have to form new networks but actually just find one person just find one person who you wouldn't usually connect with and have a conversation with them and that's literally one goal if you did that with you know yeah one new person a week is 52 new people a year. But even don't think, I mean, this is again, the antithesis of female pirate is not scale, is not growth. It's not about, I have, to, t- okay. I have to know that I've got 52 people. I met on a, a when we did the Trust the People workshop on Monday night, I met a young man who's a refugee here, had participated in the Egyptian revolution. And my God, the conversation and what he could bring to us <sighs> and what he could, he said about his experience of community and being excluded from communities and being in and out. That was enough. That gave me a whole new like, understanding that I will then bring to other people in my networks. So it's almost like it's just, it's like rewiring, isn't it? So yeah. I will then bring that to my pirate group and I'll probably mention that at the opening of one of our network things and that enhances our Yes. Level. So it doesn't matter if it's just yes. one person. Make it, make it real, make it matter and make it human and you're good. Magic. What a way to end. Thank you. That is utterly perfect. We will call it a day there. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Alex for living the change that we need to see in the world, for creating connections and asking questions and exploring answers, and for opening spaces where we can begin to build the generative future that we all need. Do read the books, Be More Pirate and How to Be More Pirate. I will put links in the show notes. I will also put a link in the show note to an offer from Mike Raven, who we interviewed on the podcast a couple of weeks ago in podcast number 47. Mike, too, spoke about the need to lean into discomfort and to grow our adaptability. He pointed out that there was no way to measure adaptability, which is essential to everything that we want to do. We need to know where our baselines are if we want to change them. So he and his co-founder, Ross Thornley of AQAI, had to build a whole system for measuring adaptability so that we can see if our ways of trying to enhance it are working. And now Mike and Ross have really kindly 
offered listeners of Accidental Gods the chance to explore their new system for free using the discount code ACGODS. This is so aligned with the piratical work of Alex and Sam, so really do make the most of it. I will put a link to the full access to that in the show notes, which will be on the page for this podcast at our website, which is accidentalgods.life. I will also put it on the original page for Mike's podcast under episode 47. And that is it for this week. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for stellar sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to come and visit us there, that address again is accidentalgods.life and you'll find the show notes there, all the other podcasts, the visualisations and meditations in the resources section and access to the Accidental Gods membership programme, which is a structured training designed to give you the opportunity to connect with the web of life, with integrity and authenticity and grounding, so that you can understand how your energy connects with the energy of the rest of the world, so that you can ask the questions, what do you want of me, and hear answers that are clear and coherent and constructive. Because what else is life for these days? So if you know of anybody else who wants to be active in being part of the change that we need to see, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.